So I invite you to take a copy of God's Word if you have one. If not, again, there's some Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. Turn to the book of Daniel. Found amidst the prophets in the Old Testament, just after the book of Ezekiel. We began last week a study in this book and continuing uh, through this fall as we uh, look at uh, God's sovereignty in the midst of judgment as well as deliverance for His people as they are in exile in Babylon. We'll be looking again this morning at Daniel chapter 1. So give ear to God's Word as I read it from Daniel chapter 1. We'll read the whole chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigns your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would, you, you would endanger my head with the king? And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter. And he tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters who were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Father, would you bless the reading and now the hearing and teaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever been swimming at the beaches of North Carolina, or really at any number of beaches for that matter, uh, you're probably familiar with what is called an undertow. An undertow is a swift current that's created along the shoreline, usually by a, a strong outflow of water uh, from a nearby inlet or from coming back off of the beach. But if you've ever been caught in an undertow, you know that you're not as concerned with what's causing it as you are with the effect that it is having on you. You know how strong that current can be. You're out there swimming, enjoying the water, and, and suddenly, before you even realize it, you can find yourself being pulled along by an amazingly strong force that literally begins to suck you away from the shore in a direction that you really don't want to go. And unless you recognize and, and react to that early, you can be going along almost unaware and find yourself suddenly being carried out to sea by this undercoat, undertow current. Well, Christians have always, to some degree, found ourselves caught in the undertow of, of an increasingly worldly, godless culture that pulls us in a direction that we do not want to go. And certainly in our day, we live in a world of, of changing leaders, changing cultures. And as, as Christians and citizens of God's kingdom, we find ourselves living, as, as Peter spoke to the church that he wrote to, as aliens and strangers in a foreign country, as, as elect exiles dispersed throughout the nations. And the book of Daniel gives us a, an historical as well as an eternal perspective of of exactly what that means. And it points us to the, to the true hope that we find in the sovereign grace of an unchanging God, as well as to the, the change that comes as we, both in ourselves and, and, and in the culture around us, as we, as God's people, stand firm in, in uncompromising faith against that, that strong undertow of a worldly culture. Daniel and his friends, as we saw last week, suddenly found themselves uprooted from their home in Jerusalem. They were brought to the foreign land of Babylon under the reign of a, a, a foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm sure they may have asked that question. How did it come to this? How do we suddenly find ourselves here? How do we reach this point to become strangers in this foreign land? And yet, they knew the answer. God had warned His people hundreds of, of years before that if they, if they turned from His ways, if they refused to live according to the law in the land in which He brought them, He would give them over to a foreign nation. He would put them under the rule of, of a foreign king and they would serve foreign gods. In fact, if we look back in 2 Kings chapter 20, you find that about 80 years before Daniel would be exiled to Babylon, King Hezekiah of Judah invited the then king of Babylon, a man named Merodach Baladin, 
into his house and he, and he took him around and showed him all the treasures of his house, all the storehouses. He showed him everything in his kingdom. In other words, he was, he was coddling up to this guy and, and opening him up to him as a potential ally and friend. And when the prophet Isaiah finds out about this, he brings the word of the Lord to Hezekiah in, in 2 Kings 20, verse 17. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And, and even some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, you let the camel's nose under the tent and guess what? It's not long before he's inside making off with all the goods. And suffice it to say that God's words were fulfilled in great detail here in Daniel chapter 1. So it should not have been surprising to Daniel, and it should not be surprising to us today that, that after decades of slowly wading in the waters of compromise, God's people suddenly find themselves being swept away by the undertow and into a godless culture. Indeed, Peter tells us, do not be surprised when you face fiery trials. <laughs> Because they are a test of your faith. And the first chapter of Daniel sets the stage for that, that test in the rest of the book by pointing to the risk and rewards of living an uncompromising life in an effort to stand firm against the, the um, growing influence of a godless culture. And we see that first in the way of the world testing Daniel's faith. And then we see it in the resolve of Daniel's to stand firm in that faith against that pull. And lastly, the word of Daniel for his faithfulness. Reward from God. So let's look first at the ways of the world in verses 3 through 7. We find a very enlightening strategy that King Nebuchadnezzar seeks to use in conquering God's people. And interestingly enough, it's not primarily a strategy of, of military power. That's been exercised, but, but here it's a, it's a strategy of, of really mental program, programming or reprogramming. Notice where he starts. He starts with the youth. doesn't mean he necessarily excluded older folks, but he knows that they are, they are already set in their ways. And so he tells his chief of staff, a man named Ashpenaz, bring the brightest, bring the best of Israel's youth those of royal, noble stock, those who are physically fit, those who are smart and good-looking, who have a good head on their shoulders. And what does he want him to do? Bring them into the king's palace. Bring them into the king's palace. And so begins what amounts to a, a very particular strategy to remake these young people into the image of the Babylonian culture in which they find themselves. Nebuchadnezzar's purpose is not just to take God's people out of the land, but really to take God out of their lives. And the first step in that strategy is to relocate them, to, to isolate them. The fall of Jerusalem to Babylon took place in three different stages. And it's in the first stage, in the first stage not everyone was taken away, but in that first stage Nebuchadnezzar takes away these young men out of their homeland 
with the intent of immersing them into the Babylonian cult way of culture and way of life. Young people, imagine being 14, 15, 16 years old. And suddenly you, you're, you're forcibly removed from your family. You're isolated from the, the environment, the influence that you grew up in. No more parental guidance. No more reading or studying God's Word. No more living in a society governed by the ways and the will of God. But not just that. They were brought into a place of, of wonder, a place of extravagance. They were brought into a place of, of, of wealth and pleasure and, and in many ways promise. Daniel and his friends were taken out of their comfort zone, away from all that was familiar, but they weren't cast into prison. They were brought into the palace. And so the king begins by isolating them from what is familiar and immersing them into, into something that was, for them, certainly intimidating, but probably also a little fascinating. And the second step, first step is, is relocation or isolation. The second step is to, to re-educate them. Nebuchadnezzar brings these young men into his palace and he instructs Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He sets them on a, a three-year course of study that would be one that would differ radically in worldview from what they had received in Israel. Now, rather than the stories and the, and the history of the world as it's revealed by God, as it's uh, laid down and, and recorded by His people, the myths and legends of a pagan land and people would be what begins to shape their worldview. They would be guided by new teachers. They would live under new laws. This was not meant just to be a nice cultural exchange program where they could be exposed to something new and different for their own enrichment. This was an effort to replace their understanding of, of what is true with something radically different. It was an attempt to start them thinking and speaking like a Babylonian based on Babylonian views and values that were markedly different and often opposed to the views and values of God. So they were relocated. They were re-educated. And the third step was, was that of enticement. Isolate them in a new environment, indoctrinate them with new ideas, and entice them with new pleasures. They were to be given food and wine daily from the king's table, and they were to be trained up for the king's service. This was heady, exciting stuff. Fancy meals. Learning the ins and outs of palace protocol and royal li living. Being prepared to rub elbows with the decision makers, the power brokers of the world's greatest kingdom at the time. Having the potential to occupy a prominent position in that administration. It would have been enough to make a young teenager's head swell a little bit. I remember my first job out of college put me in regular contact and in the service of some very wealthy, well-known, powerful people. I ate at some clubs where I couldn't have even afforded the soda crackers that were served with the soup. I spent time with people whose names and pictures I still, even today, occasionally run across in newspapers and magazine articles. And I was a brand new Christian at the time. And I tell you, 
it was enticing. It was enticing. I could feel the, the pull of power and, the, and, and wealth and fame. And Daniel and his friends were getting ready to walk through the door of a, a worldly opportunity. And Nebuchadnezzar was preparing to make it as inviting as he could. Isolation and re-education, enticement. And the last step was that of identification. Aspenaz had their names changed from their given Hebrew names, all of which had, had some reference in connection to God and to their faith. And he had them changed to Babylonian names, all of which had some reference or connection to the pagan gods of Babylon. And we might think, well, that's no big deal. And indeed, in our culture, it probably wouldn't be to have your name changed. But in ancient times, and particularly in the Hebrew culture, a name was highly significant. It was closely associated with one's identity. It spoke of one's association and, and character. And the renaming of the Hebrew youth was not just a means of helping them fit into their new culture. It was, it was meant to be, to some degree, like a, a conversion. It was a way of saying, you no longer belong to or, or are to be in allegiance to God. You now belong, you now serve the gods and the king of Babylon. Your past is past. And you now belong here in this place to serve this king. Relocation, re-education, enticement, and a new identity. And it's not hard to see that the ways of the world and the strategies of those who are opposed to God have not changed over the centuries. Busyness, work, leisure time, sports, or other more pressing activities that our culture holds up as important all vie for our time and intention in such a way that, that it makes it harder and harder. It puts pressure to on gathering with other believers on Sunday or, or spending time in, in study or fellowship, which often loses its priority. Isolation, whether physically or emotionally or spiritually from God's Word and God's people, sets us up for prey. To be the prey of the enemy almost without notice. We've seen that a lot in this past year. And it can happen subtly. You miss church a few Sundays. You stop spending time in God's Word or in prayer. Those times become less frequent as you get involved in other activities or you begin to hang out with different groups of people. And the next thing you know, you begin to be cut off in some way from the, the relationships and the environments and the, and the spiritual nurture you once knew. And young people, you are primary targets. Primary targets of such things. Pleasure has become a virtue. Advancements in technology and access to wealth are unprecedented in our society. There's a, a, an underlying expectation today that you can have it all and you can have it right away. We've moved quickly from seeing certain things that used to be luxuries as now being necessities. And all of this contributes and adds to an identity that can become much more connected to what the world thinks about how we look or what we do or what we know. Much more than an identity in our identity found in 
who God is and what he created us to be. And so Daniel and his friends suddenly found themselves caught in this undertow of Babylonian culture. And just like today, the temptation was probably strong to say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. Maybe we should just go with the flow. Maybe we shouldn't rock the boat too much and just get along in this, this new environment. After all, it can't hurt to take advantage of this opportunity. But Daniel and his friends from the very start decided to look at where they needed to resist that pull and to stand firm against the, the current of popular culture. To hold firm to the, the faith in their sovereign God. And how did they do this? Well, the key is found in verse 8. It says that Daniel resolved, literally set in his heart that he would not defile himself before with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. There was a resolve deep in his heart, a determination of his will that said, I will not go against the God I love and what I know to be true and right, no matter what the consequences. And the first step in resisting the ways of the world is to, is to stand firm on principle. The issue at this point seems relatively minor. I mean, it was, a, it was an issue of food. <laughs> I mean, of all the things that were happening in his life, he's concerned about the, the food that he's been served. And it's probably pretty good food. Why? Well, we, don't, we aren't told the details. It probably maybe contained foods that were forbidden by the dietary laws of Israel given by God. It's likely that the food was dedicated or sacrificed to the king's gods and that it was therefore spiritually tainted by idolatrous worship in the eyes of Daniel and his friends. But he doesn't tell us that. What he does tell us is that he resolved not to defile himself before the Lord. And in this case, it was the eating of the food that Daniel saw as stepping over that line. Daniel recognized this as perhaps a first small step on a slippery slope of compromise, and he didn't want to head down that path. The key here is that for Daniel, his desire is to remain faithful, to remain pure before his God. And the way we live in the small things, the way we resolve in our hearts to, to be faithful and to follow God's commands often will dictate how we live in the big things. Daniel's refrain from eating the king's food was more than just a, a dietary decision. It was a, a symbol, a demonstration of the self-control, the discipline, the utter dependence on God that would be necessary in order to live in resolute faith in a faithless culture. And you can probably hear the others in the training program saying, come on, Daniel, it's just food. It's just food. You're not in Jerusalem anymore. Nobody will know. And besides, this is good stuff. You don't want to get Nebuchadnezzar mad at us. You don't want to get us kicked out of the program, do you? Just go along with this one little thing here. It won't matter. It's just food. It's just a movie. It's just a TV show. It's just a little lie. It's just a, a game. It's just one little peek at this site. It's just you fill in the blank. 
It's the small temptations. It's the little compromises that ultimately start us down the road to faithlessness. And Daniel says from the start, I will not defile myself. I will not give in to sin. I will not compromise my convictions. Peter, in his letter, said the time is past (laughs) for living as the Gentiles do. And he gives a list of all those things that, that, that they desire and that they look at us and, and say, why won't, you per, why won't you do these things? Such a resolve is a measure of our love for God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. It's not a matter of rules, but of relationship. And if we are to swim against the current of worldliness, then we need to resolve in our heart not to, to defile that relationship, not to, to, to hamper that relationship, even in the little things. So it starts by standing firm on principle. But notice how Daniel approaches this resolve. He doesn't just put his foot down. He doesn't just fold his arms and say, no way, I'm not eating this. He's not offensive or obnoxious about it. He seeks a solution to the problem. He resolves to stand firm on on his conviction and the principles that God has given him. But he also tries to work within the system and keep that the relationships God has given him intact. So he goes to Ashpenaz and he asks permission to abstain from eating the king's food and and from defiling himself. Now the courage that this took is alluded to in verse 9 where it says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In other words, what Daniel did was actually taking a risk. It was risky. It took courage to go to Ashpenaz. And he could have easily had Daniel sent away for even, or even killed for his, his insubordination. But God gives Daniel favor in the eyes of Ashpenaz. Not enough favor for Ashpenaz to agree to it, but enough for him not to slam the door shut on it. Ashpenaz says, you know what? I like you, Daniel, but I really like my head more. <laughs> and And... I'm not really willing to risk my job and my life for your conviction. But Daniel doesn't give up. He goes to the steward assigned to bring in the food. And he says to him, listen, just just test us here. Just run a little test. Give us just veggies and water for 10 days. And then just see how we look. If you don't like what what you see, you can do what you want. And as Christians, we need to be uncompromising in terms of our principles. But often... That does not mean that we cannot seek a a cooperative solution in terms of practice. Often we are labeled as intolerant. We are labeled as stubborn because when things aren't like we want them to be, we just pick up our Bibles and go home. We withdraw from the culture. And sometimes we need to do that. But sometimes we miss a great opportunity for witness when we do that. You never know how God might open a door if you're willing to to seek a solution. And sometimes that happens just by asking. (laughs) I remember a a man in our church wanted to start, years ago, wanted to start a Bible study at his work. And they had some pretty firm policies which prohibited any of that kind of thing. But he decided to ask. He went to his boss. And he said, look, I just want to, if anybody wants to get together, I'd love to be able to do this at lunchtime. won't take away from work. And his boss said, look, if, it's, if you do it during lunch and it remains voluntary, then that's fine. 
And God started a, a Bible study there at work. He could have just complained about the policy. He could have talked to others about how intolerant his workplace was. But he prayed and he asked. And the Lord opened the door. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now that does not mean compromise. Your convictions, the, the truth of God's Word. But it does mean that we can, we can demonstrate grace and we can uh, seek to, to work out solutions in a way that leads to peace and sometimes opens doors for the gospel. So Daniel stands firm on principle. He seeks to work out a solution in practice. Well, what enabled him to do that? Because he trusted God's provision in the matter. I don't think Daniel was thinking when he said, give us vegetables and water. I don't think he was working out all the nutritional tables for this new Daniel diet and how it would make them stronger and, and better uh, fit for what they did. Um, I think Daniel knew that they were not in Babylon by accident. He knew this wasn't just some strange twist of faith. God had brought them there, even if it was in judgment, but God had not abandoned them. And Daniel had a confidence and a deep faith that God would work, even through this solution. There was no guarantee. He didn't know in 10 days what would happen. He didn't know even that the steward would agree with his position. But Daniel trusted that in 10 days, God could glorify himself through the obedience of Daniel and his friends. And in order to resist the ways of the world, we have to stand firm on principle. We have to see where we can cooperate and seek solutions in practice. But all the while, we have to believe and trust God with the outcome. We, have to, we, may, we may have to put our jobs, our reputations, even our lives on the line, but we can do so with confidence that God will be faithful no matter what the outcome is. And God was faithful to Daniel. And that's what we see at the end of this chapter. After 10 days, a steward came back and, and Daniel and his buddies were buffer than everybody else in the program. And so he immediately puts the rest of the class on, on this diet and God amazing. Daniel, resolving to stand firm, begins to see reforms take place in the palace. And that's a pattern that would continue through the rest of his life. We see the triumph of faith and their faithfulness. How? Well, first, God gives them understanding. In verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and in wisdom. He helps them excel in the tasks that they were given. He opens their eyes, yes, to the, to the literature and the history and the language of the Babylonians, but He also enables them to discern what is true and what is false, to see it through the lens of what God has revealed. And so God even gives Daniel the ability to discern visions and dreams, a task which we'll see serves him well in his role in the kingdom. As Daniel and his friends resolve to stand firm for God, God doesn't take them out of their situation but He enables them to, to persevere and even to excel and lead in that particular situation. And so friends, whatever your job is, whatever your calling is, whether it's in the workplace, at home, at school, God has put you there and as you resolve to follow Him, to walk faithfully with a resolute faith in Him, He'll enable you to be a witness 
and he'll prosper you in the way he desires to prosper you. And not only does he increase their wisdom and learning, he expands their influence. At the end of the three-year training program, Daniel and his friends stand before the king. They're taking their oral exams, and guess what happens? They finish at the top of their class. They were ten times better than all the wise men in the kingdom. And we'll see that as a result, they were given positions of authority and influence in the kingdom. As they were faithful in the little things, God entrusted them with more responsibility and more opportunity. So God rewards Daniel with increased wisdom. He expands their influence. And lastly, he extends his witness. The last verse of chapter 1, often overlooked, says that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You know, when new kings came into administrations, just like when we changed presidents, they didn't usually keep the people who served in that administration. Oftentimes they killed them because they didn't want them to, to undermine their new, uh, their new reign and rule. But here Daniel finds himself not only outlasting Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar's successor and his successor and his successor all the way down till king of Cyrus of Persia comes and takes over some 65 years later. Daniel's faithfulness and resolve to resist the ways of the world, to trust in God's sovereign grace and provision would enable him to outlast not just King Nebuchadnezzar, but would sustain him until the day when his people would be restored to their land. So just a couple of Quick applications. First, we need to exalt and glorify God for His sovereign grace and His control over all things. Well, we have a lot to learn from Daniel. The reality is that God raises him up. God sends him into exile. God gives him courage, conviction, and faith as well as the humble, winsome personality that he would need to stand firm as God's witness. Not all of us will be given the kind of opportunity Daniel had, but all of us in Christ are given to serve the same God Daniel had and the same grace and ability by God to follow Him and to be used by Him. And so this story, this book, is more about the sovereign grace and power of Daniel's God than it is about Daniel. And that same God is our God. And that same power and grace is, is ours now through Jesus Christ. The one who's greater than Daniel that came and delivered us from our bondage and captivity to sin and now walks with us as we live in this world until that day he comes to bring us home. And just a word to our youth here. Daniel was a teenager. He was not older than some of you. And he knew what it was to face peer pressure. He knew what it was to be tempted by pleasure, by the offer of power by being around wealth. He knew what it was to be lonely. He knew what it was to be an outsider. He knew what it was to be ridiculed for his faith. And yet he stood firm. He did not cave in on the small things. And as a result, he had powerful influence for the kingdom. He knew how to have friends and influence people. And he knew that those things come in seeking first to please God. And to live faithfully for Him. And so in this world, it will seek to isolate you, to indoctrinate you, to, to entice you and claim your identity in many ways. And Daniel's a great example of how to be in the world, but not of it. 
And so, young people, you have a great opportunity before you and a great test before you of your faith to live your lives for Jesus Christ, to be used by God, not only to resist the undertow of a declining culture, but actually be a witness in the midst of that. So don't underestimate the power of God's grace. It isn't easy, but resolve, as Daniel did, to stand firm in the little things. And for those here who may not be believers, let me just say that there's no standing firm without God. The undertow of culture will carry you away to a place you do not want to go. Will you reach out? Will you grab a hold of Christ, the anchor of your soul? He is a firm foundation. And he is the one who will give grace and strength and joy and peace and will remain faithful even when we are faithless. But will also give you the power to walk faithfully in these difficult days. Let's pray together. Lord, as we prepare to come to your table, we are reminded that it's not because of anything that we have done or deserve that we are invited into your presence, that we have been welcomed into your kingdom. It's because of your grace and your love for us and your discipline in our lives and bearing the punishment for our sin in yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. That, Lord, we now come to the table not of an earthly king, but of the King of kings. And so, Father, we ask that you would work in us even now, through this sacrament, through your word preached, through your spirit in our hearts. Lord, to strengthen our faith. To enable us to walk faithfully against the ways and the worldview that would seek to draw us away from you. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.